Well, with that, let's turn to the scriptures together, beginning a brand new series today through the Sermon on the Mount. And so join me in Matthew chapter 5 and a service, uh, a ser series rather, that we're calling Living Up, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we all know we live in a dark, troubled, and confused age. And we understand there's no consensus in our culture about what's right or wrong, about what's good or evil. It certainly appears that everyone is doing what seems right in their own eyes, according to their own opinion. And as many say in our culture today, according to their own truth. And so that's the day in which we live. And not only that, you and I feel the pressure from the culture around us to conform. And so really we feel like our culture has become increasingly unloving, unmerciful, and you dare not resist them lest you pay a high price. And of course, as many calling in these days, we are living in a cancel culture. If you don't come along, we will ostracize you and remove you. And yet we're reminded of our savior that Jesus calls us to a very different set of values as his people. And we're going to see this so clearly in the months ahead as we walk through the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And so as we go through these passages, these, this verse by verse through the weeks ahead, I want us to consider seriously what Jesus, our King, calls for from us. And I want us to respond faithfully by reordering our minds and our lives according to what Jesus has said. Now, I want you to brace yourselves because as we come through our Lord's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, we're going to notice together how amazingly beautiful his words are. But at the same time, how absolutely challenging his words are for us. We're going to find out that the Lord calls for us to live in a way that's really counterintuitive. And certainly countercultural, and if we're being honest, humanly impossible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. So make no mistake, Jesus is calling us to a radically different mindset and lifestyle. So that's why we're, I'm calling this living up. Before we came into Christ, we would all agree we were living low. We were living according to the pattern of this world, but now in Christ, new leader, new morality, new values, and Jesus spells those out for us so beautifully here in Matthew 5. And so let's dive in together. Matthew 5, we're going to focus on the first five verses, but let's go ahead and read the first 12. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's keep reading now. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things evil, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you hear what Jesus calls for here? Something beautifully different than the life that we lived before. But, but if you notice more challenging than the life that we lived before because Jesus here brings up persecution that his followers are going to experience 
as he says, because of him. And we're going to get to that idea of persecution he mentions here in a couple of weeks. Now consider the setting here. We're told that Jesus sits on a mountain and began, begins to teach this. And it kind of reminds us of Moses who went up on a mountain to receive the law of God. Here's Jesus sitting on a mountain to dispense the law of the new covenant. Here we have this section, verses 1 through 12, that we call the Beatitudes. The key word here is the word blessed. And it's used nine times here in these 12 verses of Matthew 5. So what does it mean when the scripture says here, blessed repeatedly? Well, that word carries the idea of happy or fortunate or favored. So our idea of happiness, not far off, but this is certainly would be deeper than that, but it does involve happiness. Now there are other beatitudes in the Bible. One of those is Psalm one verses one and two. Remember this passage, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So, so you want to be happy, the scripture says in Psalm 1, then don't walk in the path of the evildoers, pivot to the word of God, make much of the word of God, take it in, live according to the scriptures. There are other beatitudes. Acts 20 verse 35, where it says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So you want to be happy, you want to be blessed, there's another way that's countercultural that God gives us in the word. So whenever you see that word blessed in the scripture in this type of way, our eyes, our ears should perk up. Here's God who loves us most saying, here's how you can have happiness. And it's not according to the ways of the world that we have around us. Well, we know a bit about happiness. And even in our constitution, we have those famous words about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here's how it's worded in our constitution here in the United States. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we would say that is most people's, that is their chief pursuit. I want to be happy. People may not say it this way, but it's their number one goal. I, I want to be happy. But with all this focus on happiness, why is it that so few people actually seem thoroughly happy? Well, on the one hand, even our constitution doesn't promise anybody happiness. Uh, but if a government is functioning like it ought to, there's the freedom to pursue happiness. But no guarantee that you're going to have it. But, but here's the real issue. As fallen human beings that we all are, we typically pursue happiness in all the wrong places. Over and over again, we chase those things that leave us empty handed. We think, oh no, this will make me happy. They seem happy, they're doing this. Let me chase what they're doing. And over and over again, it's like chasing fool's gold. It just didn't work out. So whether it's going after drugs and alcohol, I think that's really gonna work out for me. It never, never does. Or I'm gonna chase popularity. Maybe if enough people like my posts on social media, that's just gonna give me a kick. And I'm just going to seek the clicks and seek the likes. And it just leaves us empty. Many people search for riches. If I just accumulate enough stuff, I will be thoroughly happy. And it just doesn't work out that way. Many chase after immorality and thinking that will make me feel happy, but typically feeling used instead. But here Jesus gives us a whole different way, a way he calls being blessed, a whole new perspective on happiness and blessing here. And you and I would do well 
to reorient our thinking according to the teaching of our Savior here. So what do we see first here? What does Jesus say is the way to happiness, this blessed life he talks about? Well, first he says this in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. And this is amazing. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, isn't that counterintuitive? That somebody would tell you, you want to be blessed? Then they bring up poverty here. So what's he talking about here? What does it mean to be poor in spirit as a manner of being blessed? Well, he's not talking about being financially poor. But let's pause here a second. Let's talk about the financially poor. Though we would never aspire to financial poverty, such a painful condition to be in. But there is a sense in which the poor are blessed when the scripture talks about it. And it is the sense in which it is more easily, it more easy for someone who is disadvantaged to recognize, I don't have it all together and I need God. When we look at the responsiveness to the gospel around the world, historically, we often see that the poor are more ready to respond to Christ than the rich. In fact, didn't Jesus warn us it's very difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Of course, we know theologically it's impossible for any of us to be saved apart from the grace of God. But the rich person has a special temptation to be blinded to their need for God. They can be so content with the comfort they've accumulated for themselves that I don't really need God like the other people need God. And what a barrier to overcome to see your need for Christ. So here's the point. Rich or poor economically, we must all recognize that we are poor in spirit. And this means to recognize your spiritual bankruptcy apart from Christ. It doesn't matter how much stuff you have, no matter how wealthy you have, no matter what a great citizen you appear to be, you are spiritually bankrupt apart from Jesus Christ. Real, this means to realize how deeply and profoundly you need the grace of God in your life. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus confronted one of his churches. They had lost sight of their true condition, the church at Laodicea. They had slipped into pride and apathy. And so listen to these words that Jesus brought to one of his churches. This is Revelation 3, 14 and following. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now catch this. Because you say, I am rich and I've become wealthy and have need of nothing. Jesus goes on to say, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. And then beautifully, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. So let's, let's apply this to ourselves. Do you know your spiritual poverty apart from Christ? Do you know how desperate you are for the grace of God in your life? Jesus says you are blessed if you see that, if you know that. And yet, don't you agree with me? That's upside down thinking to our culture. Usually in our culture, we're told, be self-confident, be self-reliant. You have this. In fact, I had a, an amusing moment uh, this week watching local news 
And dear, there was a strange segment on the local news. I'd never seen it before, but it was like this motivation Monday kind of thing. And they had this motivational speaker. It was odd because I wasn't really paying much attention to the news. And all of a sudden there's a lady there starting to try to hype people up. And she said things like this, don't give up. Don't give up on yourself, your life, your dreams. You are valuable. You are powerful. Don't give up on you. You've got this no matter what. And then at the end of it, she says, I hope I've empowered you today. Well, it wasn't horrible, but I found it odd. And I, I thought, this is kind of silly. It certainly was shallow, completely empty. And I felt kind of demeaned. I thought, I don't even know you. You don't know me. And I don't need you, the stranger to be telling me these, these empty thoughts. The truth is I'm poor in myself, but I've been made rich in Christ. The truth is I'm pitifully weak, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Truth is I was dead in my trespasses and sin, but have been made alive together with Christ. God is what I need. So I, I don't need to be hyped up about me. I need Christ. In him is life. In Christ is love. In Christ is purpose. In Christ is power. So you and I are powerful in Christ, but didn't Jesus say, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So please don't hype me up about me. Please don't hype yourself about you. We have someone far better that we should gaze upon and dwell in. And so yes, we recognize our poverty of spirit. It's critical that you and I know I'm nothing apart from Christ. Jesus told an amazing parable in Luke 18 about two men going in to pray. Perhaps you've heard this, a righteous, uh, a self-righteous person and one who knew they were a sinner. Listen to this real quickly. This is Luke 18, nine and following. And Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said this, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So do, do you desire to be happy? Do you want a life that would be described by God as blessed? Then embrace this truth of your spiritual poverty. Yes, it's true. You're created in the image of God and you have infinite worth in his sight because he created you. But the sad reality is we're sinners and we are broken in our sin, totally bankrupt. Scripture says apart from Christ, even our efforts at righteousness, these are like filthy rags before God. And so here's our reminder, we need Christ. And that's what we just celebrated at the Lord's Supper. We need Jesus and he came for us. He atoned for our sins on the cross. We come to him not with arrogance and pride. We come with absolute humility. Lord, I'm poor. I need you to save me, make me clean and make me righteous. And Jesus is the one who can turn our spiritual fortunes all around. Second Corinthians eight, nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so he came, lived a poor life, lived a righteous life 
gave his life on a cross and was raised from the dead, if you trust in him, you go from spiritual poverty on your own to rich in him. And in fact, did you see the promise here? Those who are poor in spirit, see it, respond to Christ. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a reversal of spiritual fortunes when you see that. Well, not only that do we see here, blessed are the poor in spirit, but notice next, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So what does it mean to be blessed when you mourn? So two aspects we'll consider of that this morning. First of all, this refers to mourning over your sinfulness. So yes, recognize your spiritual poverty, but in doing so, this breaks you. So have you ever been there before? You find yourself in sin and you feel deeply ashamed. Ever, ever felt that? Totally disappointed in yourself. A, a sense where you say, I'm undone because of my spiritual condition. How did I, I get in such a sad condition? How could I have possibly said that? How could I have possibly thought that? How could I have possibly done that? How could I have possibly said no to God when he was calling me to do that? You ever, you ever been there? And in this as condition that we would say, well, that's mourning over our sin. Now, Satan would tell us, hey, don't, don't bother now. You've done so much wrong. God could never forgive you. So don't even try to come back to God. Don't repent. And that would be a lie, of course. Jesus says, if you're mourning, oh, you will be comforted. But isn't it true that too few actually mourn over their sin? Typically in our culture, the move is to excuse sin, to rationalize sin, maybe even to be proud of sin. Some people just stuff the sense of guilt down, like it's not that bad, or God doesn't care about this, or I know the Bible says this, but I've prayed about it with God and he's let me know that in my case, this is okay. That's the opposite of mourning over our sin. A number of great examples of what it looks like when we mourn over sin, but in Psalm 51, David models for us after a colossal, gross failure with Bathsheba and having her husband killed. Can you imagine? He models for us now, though, once confronted in sin, what does it look like when you mourn over your sin and it leads you to repentance? Listen to Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressors by transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you you only I have sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge behold I was brought forth in iniquity in sin my mother conceived me behold you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. And then catch this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Did you hear in the words of David, his 
understanding of his spiritual poverty? And did you hear him mourning over his failure and his desperation to be cleansed? He did not pray a prayer of confession like this. You know, God, if I did anything wrong, I hope that you'll forgive me. The answer from heaven will be if. <laughs> There's no if. That's not real confession. It wasn't bland like, you know, for, for these things that I might have done wrong. No, no might here. Real mourning over our sin is I, I, have, I have blown it. I have sinned. How could I have been so evil? How could I have been so rebellious against you? It's not the only place we read about mourning over sin. James 4, 8 through 10. Listen to this. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now catch this. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. That's how a disciple responds to sin. So as a disciple, you love Jesus, you want to follow Jesus. He's forgiven all your sins and then you face a moment of temptation. In fact, we all face many moments of temptation. And in those moments when you fail, you mourn. It's an evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you. This is the part of the change, the new life, that before you could sin and not be sorrowful over it. You just wanted to hide it and keep going in it. But now that you're in Christ, you have a new nature, and now you sin and you begin to mourn. And you don't want to stay there. And so you run to the Lord. And isn't it wonderful as a Christian, you find in running to God with your sin for forgiveness, you find great comfort. You find renewal and restoration. There's no denial and resisting in the heart of a disciple. 2 Corinthians 7, 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces re repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So here's a practical question. When was the last time you mourned over a sin in your life? When was the last time it deeply grieved you because of a sin in your life? If you say, I, I don't know that I've ever been really that bothered about my sin, then that, that should be a warning light in your life. Some, something's wrong there. So we're, we're not those who rank sins, big sin. If it were a big sin, I'd really be sorry, but I'm just going to give myself a pass on all these things that I value as lesser. No, no our, our move is when we know we've disobeyed God is I want to mourn. Jesus says, you're blessed if when you're this in your life, you mourn and, and you cry out to God for forgiveness. And don't you praise him. He's a God who forgives. This isn't calling for us to wallow in our failure over and over again. No, we, we mourn. He says, you'll be comforted. We, we come to him in confession. Don't you love the promise of 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and I love this, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the morning is just for a season. We run to God with it, and we receive his fresh cleansing and restoration and great joy. So to mourn certainly means that, to mourn over our sins and run to Jesus with it for comfort. But there is a second aspect here, certainly that those who mourn will be comforted by God. And of course, this reminds us just even as we talked about poverty a moment ago, that God's heart is for the oppressed, for the widows, for the orphans, for the underdog. We see it in the scriptures. And the good news is for anybody, through all of our hardships and difficulties and pains in life, in Christ, there was comfort for us, even in the midst of it. Here Jesus gives these words, and he knows that his disciples are soon going to mourn. 
As he's arrested and crucified, they're going to be mourning. Oh, but in the resurrection of Christ, there's going to be comfort. Jesus knows these very disciples are going to be mourning over the persecution and martyrdom that's going to come to them. But also, oh, there's comfort coming for them. They will be comforted forever in the moment through the ongoing indwelling Holy Spirit, but comfort forever in the presence of God in heaven. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And then finally, blessed are the gentle. Or some translations say, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. It reminds us of Psalm 37, 11, But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So what is the meaning here of this word gentle or meek? Well, it means to be humble. It does carry the idea of gentleness, not being aggressive. Now, this is another attribute that's not sought in our culture. You, you didn't grow up with people saying to you, you know, you really ought to, you ought to just really prize the idea of gentleness. In our culture, actually, we understand that they typically favor the go-getter, the hard hitter, the aggressor, the intimidating one. That seems to be who rises and that's what we might aspire to. Kind of like the attorney commercials. You tell them you mean business. That's how you get it done. And the believer in Jesus Christ told different than that. The world around us might tout pride, intimidation, ridicule, oppression, our, our culture even exalting violence in many quarters. But we as the children of God through faith in Jesus, we're called to gentleness. We're called to meekness. But of course, don't misunderstand that as weakness. Here, this meekness, this gentleness is strength with accompanying humility. It's strength with grace. It's the ability to be assertive, but not be aggressive. And there are great biblical examples of this throughout, but we could just look at two. First of all, Moses. Moses was noted in the old covenant for his meekness, but you could never say that Moses was weak. I mean, he was, but then when full of God and when he was trusting in God, God did great things through Moses and delivering the people through God's signs and wonders and in the wilderness leading a difficult, obstinate people, we see there's meekness under the control and power of God. But how about Jesus himself? Jesus described himself in these same terms. In Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, remember these famous words? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Here it is, for I am gentle. And humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and there is no weakness in Jesus. Gentle and weakness, not the same thing. Jesus, as we know, the second person of the Trinity, he is omnipotent God. And so in the Bible, though, as we think about this, these, these three things we've talked about, being poor in spirit, mourning here, and being gentle, don't they all bring to mind humility? If we, if we saw a common thread in those three things, absolute humility. And over and over again in the scriptures, we see this call, this absolute necessity that God's people be humble. We see this type of refrain over and over again. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so this, this gentle, godly, self-controlled strength is expected by God's people in the church and in the community. How about in the church? In Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, we read this. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Here it is. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. But not just in the church are we to treat each other that way, even in the community. Titus 3, 1 through 3. 
Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable. Here it is, gentle, showing every consideration, catch this, for all men. This, this is to be a defining mark of the disciples of Jesus. He, he puts it here in his Sermon on the Mount, and it's echoed throughout the New Testament, but it's a quality that we don't prize and we sometimes overlook. Doesn't seem like that would be the most helpful to us. So yes, it's true. We live in a world, and we're gonna see in the Sermon on the Mount, we are to be salt and light in the culture. We have to sometimes stand up to evil in the culture, but we do it in a different way with different tactics than the world around us. We don't, we don't live low, we don't join them in the way they fight, we fight in a different way. And so we're gonna be passionate, but we're gonna be positive, pointing to Christ. We're gonna be prayerful and we're gonna use truthful persuasion when we engage the culture, but we won't resort to tactics like rage or deceit or intimidation or violence. That'll never be our move. So in other words, we're gonna stand for Christ and by his help, we're gonna do it like Christ. And then notice the promise here, that, that the meek or the gentle will inherit the earth. What a promise that is. So in the end, the obnoxious and the arrogant and the bullies and the oppressors, they will lose. They will vanish from the scene for judgment. And the, the first will be last and the last will be first. We can trust God in that and the earth will be ours. The new earth is the promise of the scriptures. We'll be the only ones on God's new earth this will be heaven for us forever. Indeed, we can trust the Lord. It can be gentle. So we can be gentle. So here, let's wrap up this way. Are, are you happy? Do you feel like, oh yeah, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Remind yourself of the pathway toward that. Recognize your spiritual poverty. In other words, your spiritual need. You need Jesus. Mourn over your sin. It's right. I am sorry, God. I'm deeply grieved about my sin. I've offended you. Like David said, against you and you only, I've sinned. I'm grieved by that. And then let that drive you to Jesus for his complete cleansing, for salvation, for a brand new life, a brand new purpose. Come to Jesus, trust in him. And Christian, you say, I already know him, but maybe you say, I, I haven't mourned over sin. I've been tolerating sin in my life. Would you once and for all renounce that, be clean, be restored. Let him restore to you the joy of his salvation. Let me pray for us.